Rose, Tim Weisberg, along with Stephanie Burke and science advisor Matt Moniz. We are here to talk about the paranormal as we are each and every Saturday night. And I can say paranormal with far less self-consciousness now. I can say paranormal because we now have this fancy windscreen oh. on, on the microphone here. Well, just yours. So, well, I think eventually I think they'll get them on the other ones. Uh, but really, this station only has one person at a time on generally. Mm-hmm. You know, during during Phil's show, it's Phil and Casey, but I don't know if they worry so much about Casey popping her peas like I do. Okay. So I think that's part of the reason why, you know, it's on this one, because they probably said, well, the guy that hosts the show about the paranormal is always popping his peas, and it sounds like crap on the radio. So I think that that's part of the reason why they had to do that, because they were tired of hearing me blow up people's speakers. I thought you were going to say pop your peas one more time. No, but it, it does help. It certainly does help. And uh, one thing that it certainly helps with is keeping all the spit out of the microphone. Well, that's fantastic. So when you talk a lot, sometimes that just happens. And I talked a lot today. Did you? I was on the air for six hours straight. How'd it go? Uh, well, it went all right. You know, I was expecting to get a lot of calls, and I was supposed to have a co-host for when I was filling in for Ken Pittman from 9 to noon, mm-hmm. and then the co-host didn't come in, and he didn't respond to any of my messages. Well, that's weird. So I don't know if maybe he was sick, too. Uh, so I ended up having to pretty much carry all six hours on my own because we were getting a lot of calls. I think I took maybe seven or eight calls over wow. the entire six-hour period. What was the main topic? Yeah, well, it's it's varying. I mean, we talk mostly about the uh, about the San Bernardino shootings, and you know, just some of the stuff associated with that. Whether you know how it took a while for them to refer to it as a terrorist act, and they were talking about the workplace violence, and then the FBI had come out and said that it was a terrorist act. The White House was a little upset with them for saying that, but then ISIS claimed on their radio show that they considered the couple to be supporters. So all that stuff going back and forth. Uh, but, you know, you start with that topic, and then it branches off into other things. The the UMass Dartmouth Chancellor stepped down when she was on the verge of being fired, so that came up. And then that led to talking about the new Bedford superintendent and her contract. And so, you know, that's the thing about general talk is you never know what path you're going to end up going down. I did try to spend a little bit of time talking about Scott Weiland, and I expected there to be a lot of backlash from people, you know, for glorifying a heroin addict. But... But wasn't it heart failure that caused this? Well, they, they found cocaine next to the body, apparently. Oh. Mm-hmm. That that came out earlier today. But we all know that he had his problems. He had his demons. And uh, as I was saying this morning, it, it you know kind of hit me a little bit harder because, you know, not only being a huge Wyland fan and an STP fan, and, but uh, the fact that, you know, it's if you ask anybody, you know, who do you have in your, your death pool? I think most people that know Scott Weiland and his story had him, like, ahead of Abe Vigoda at this point. <laughs> like, for 20 years, we've been expecting Scott Weiland to die. Not to be morbid, but when I saw Stone Temple Pilots in concert in 1997, I bought an autographed CD from the band that they had for sale at the merchandise table because I said, pretty soon, Weiland's going to overdose and die, and this CD will be worth a lot of money. I know <laughs> that that's not a very polite way of thinking, but... You know, that was what I was thinking. Plus, I, you know, like I said, I love the band, so I wanted to have it. But but that was one of my thoughts, is that this thing's going to be worth some money when Wyland eventually overdoses. That was 20 years ago. So, you know, 18 years ago. So, you know, he 
was on the verge of this for a long time because he would kept cleaning up and then, you know, he would end up having more problems and he'd relapse. And so I don't think anybody was really surprised, but it still, it hits a little bit harder when you're like, wow, you know, that, that. and I was saying this morning that, uh, in the nineties, you know, you lost Kurt Cobain to suicide, Lane Stanley to, you know, an overdose, you know, you lost these guys back then in the course of their era and it's almost like it's just part of their story. It doesn't have the same impact as here you are all these years out. And, and this guy couldn't overcome those demons for all that time. So, you know, it's, it's a sad, it's certainly a sad story. And, uh, and of course he'll live on. I, I was telling people this morning that if you are not familiar with his work, definitely dive into some of his solo stuff. You know, everybody knows the STP, they know the Velvet Revolver, but his first solo album was so weird. And then I found out, I read an article yesterday from the A&R guy, who he actually worked with on that album, who said that the demos that he came in with were even weirder. They were like trippy Beatlesque stuff. And then it was a matter of they had to tone down some of the weirdness to make it more marketable. So I would love to hear those demos sometime. And then his Christmas album, which if you've never heard the Scott Weiland Christmas album, it's you would expect it to be strange and unusual or at least, you know, hard rocking and straightforward. But no, it's just very, you know, 1950s Bing Crosby-ish. So it's like traditional type of... And you wouldn't expect that from him. And it's almost like that's what made it weird is that he's not only is he singing these songs in a very straightforward fashion, but he was making music videos that look like these 1950s Bing Crosby TV specials. And he was clean cut, wearing a sweater and, you know, sitting by the fire with a cigar and, you know, that kind of stuff. So that made it even weirder. But, you know, it's just a a great catalog of work. And uh, despite his problems, he was a great artist. So... That's my little soapbox moment for that. But it did, it hit me actually kind of hard, which, you know, usually when a celebrity dies, I'm like, eh, well, whatever. I didn't know them. I mean, we all feel a special connection to certain musicians or, you know, people that we like in movies or television, and we get upset if something happens to them. But generally my feeling is, yeah, well, it's, it's, I didn't know him. It's not like he was – it doesn't have the same effect as if somebody in your family goes. But I don't know why. Maybe it's because – you know, you expected that if he if he made it this far with all those troubles, maybe he was going to live forever. Well, it's a common theme in rock and roll. We all know that it happens regularly. It's not going to change. Well, hopefully it can, though, for anybody that is suffering from addiction. Hopefully they can find a way to clean up and overcome it. Use this as a lesson of what can happen to you. But we are going to be talking tonight with our guest, uh, Dr. Melba Ketchum, who will be talking with us about her work in you know, mapping the genome of, of Bigfoot, DNA research, DNA evidence of a physical creature. And we've debated in the past what we actually think a Sasquatch is. Is it a real, live, physical specimen? Is it a trans-dimensional being? Is it something from outer space? We've talked about this. And, uh, and Dr. Ketchum actually believes that the Sasquatch is not only a real, physical creature, but actually very closely related to humans and, and, and uh, pretty much our cousin. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk about some of her research and the DNA work that they've done. And of course, Matt has known her for a while, and he'll, you know, he'll talk about some of the research that he's done as well. But I just think that there's a lot of different avenues that we can take in discussing these creatures, in terms of you know the theories that are out there, the people that are out there researching them. But she's got the hardcore evidence. Yeah, she actually has physical samples. Samples that have been, and not just, you know, one or two samples like most researchers may have, but she's been getting 
sample sent in from across the country and around the world. So we'll talk to her about that as well. But, uh, of course, today being December 5th, we know what today is, right? December 5th. But do we know whose day it is today? Tomorrow in Europe is St. Nicholas Day. Oh, Krampus. Right. So that makes December 5th. And, of course, the movie just came out. And uh, the reviews have been in. I, I've seen some mixed bag reviews. I wasn't really sure if it was going to be straight horror, if it was going to be horror comedy. Uh, but the the reviews have been kind of up and down. Uh, but, you know, I'll still see it when it comes out, like, on cable or on DVD. I'm not going to run out to the theater to see it. But uh, Well, our friend, for those who those of you who are not familiar with Krampus, and up until a couple of years ago, I think there were a lot of people that weren't, I would probably look at when they did an episode of American Dad about Krampus, that really that, that's when a lot of people started paying attention to this legend. But, uh, you know, our friend Jeff Belanger posted up on his Facebook page earlier today about Krampus. So I'm going to just read to you what he wrote here uh, very quickly. Between the 1870s and the 19-teens, Krampus was a very popular figure in Europe and parts of the United States. Though this Yuletide figure originated in Germany and Austria, he quickly spread because parents are always looking for new and innovative ways to scare their children into submission. St. Nicholas Day is celebrated on December 6th in many European countries, but December 5th belongs to Krampus. You can hear Krampus approaching because the chains he wears around his body clink and clank. He is a horned devil creature with one regular foot and one cloven hoof. His long red forked tongue often hangs from his mouth, surrounded by an evil grin. Over his shoulder, he carries either a scratchy burlap sack or a basket so he can stuff the naughty kids inside. He also carries a switch of sticks for beating the bad children. That would get him at least banned from two games in the NFL. (laughs) Through old postcards from the turn of the century, we can see how popular this figure was. But Krampus was never the enemy of St. Nicholas. He was his dark shadow. He was his cohort who did the dirty work. When you were a kid, did you ever consider that no one you knew ever really got coal or sticks in their stockings on Christmas morning? It's because Krampus had already claimed the bad children and carted them away to be eaten. As the 20th century wore on, Krampus was almost forgotten. But given his new movie, maybe he's poised for a comeback. Maybe we need him to bring balance back to the holiday season. Maybe St. Nicholas has called on him once again because bad children are everywhere. So that comes from Jeff Belanger. Uh, he posted that up on his Facebook page earlier today. So if you made it through tonight, if you if you make it to midnight, to St. Nicholas Day, then that means that whatever you did, it wasn't really all that bad. Moniz, I'm a little concerned for you. Mm-hmm. What, because I'm actually in the studio by midnight? I'm going to be watching the window behind you, and if, I, if I'm going like this, it just means Krampus is in the window and he's come for you. At least I'm going to assume that he's coming for you. <laughs> Well, it's not for me, that's for sure. Who do you think he works for? Well, yeah, we'll, right. we'll see what we'll see what happens. We'll see who. But gets, that means we're safe, right? Because he only cares about monies. Yeah, we'll see who gets dragged out, kicking and screaming, and and eaten by Krampus. Not Although, either. if he made it this far, I mean, Moni's is pretty up there. He's pretty old. So, if he's made it this far without getting hauled away by Krampus, he might be all right. It depends on how he's been this year. Yeah, each year is its own thing. Too busy this year. So actually, check out Jeff's Facebook page uh, if you haven't seen it, and you can see a picture of his new Krampus sweater. I did see so, that. Yes, he made sure that uh, he took a, a very awkward pose for it as well. 
Well, that's Jeff. And you can see the Krampus tree from the Fall River Historical Society uh, with the photographs by our buddy Frank Grace, mm-hmm. who, if you haven't gone to his page or the Trig Photography Facebook page, I highly recommend it so you can check out for yourself some of the fantastic fo- photography he's done of both the Fall River Historical Society's Christmas display and also the Murdoch Whitney House in Winchenden's Christmas display. So it's, I mean, you want to talk, we always talk about how his, you know, his uh, paranormal photos of haunted places really are like a ghost story captured in a frame, as Christmas pictures are probably even more impressive. So and he uses the same same technique. He's awesome. But I don't know. I'm still, I'm still just not in the Christmas spirit myself. So I don't know. Maybe Krampus is coming for me because I have, I, you know, I never get in the Christmas spirit till like three days before. But why wait? Because Christmas is just a stress for me and a headache. Well, it shouldn't be. I think the biggest problem is that there's so much going on in my life all the time that I never really let that Christmas spirit sink in. It's usually once I watch Rudolph and go to Edaville. Those are the two things, the two hallmarks that make it Christmas for me. So what you're saying is you have to go to Edaville like end of November. No, that'd be way too soon. Okay. I would not fully enjoy it. I, I'm one of those people that's like, I don't want to hear a Christmas song till like two weeks before. I don't know about you. Which, you know, working in radio, it's dangerous because most of these stations are. That's why I like working here at WBSM because Fun 107 doesn't go all Christmas music. Right. So I can walk by the studio and not be like, Arr! Light Rock 105. We can't mention other radio stations on the air. They don't know what we're talking about. It could but be anywhere. The The... I see this every year, though, the backlash from seeing all of my friends that post on social media about radio. Mm-hmm. They'll, like, post to certain radio DJs or certain stations, like, thank you for not going all Christmas. Thank you for only mixing in Christmas once in a while. It's like, but somebody's listening to it or else they wouldn't keep doing it. Mm-hmm. Wasn't there one station that played Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer over and they, over? There's always those stunt stations. But what would bother me is, like, what if you're one of these people that works at one of these stations, and then they tell you, oh, listen, for the next, like, 65 days, you don't have to come to work. Mm-hmm. We're just going to be playing pre-programmed Christmas music nonstop, 24 hours a day. There's, there's your Christmas bonus. Hopefully they still get paid anyway, but I don't know. Well, we are not going to play any Christmas music here, that's for sure, <laughs> at least not tonight. Maybe when we get closer to the holiday, we'll we'll play some of the weirder stuff. Maybe we'll just play the Scott Weiland Christmas album in its entirety. You never know the way we will go. But uh, Now, for those who don't remember, though, we all know the Monster Mash, Bobby Boris Pickett. Yeah. Have you ever heard Monster's Holiday, the Christmas version of the Monster Mash? Mm-mm. No. All right. We'll play. I'll definitely put that on the list of something to play as we get closer to the holiday itself. But that's uh, it's pretty much the same song, <laughs> only it's more to a Christmas beat than the Monster Mash, so. You know, we'll we'll play that coming up in the next few weeks. And if you've never heard it, it's certainly worth listening. But Bobby Pickett, of course, a Massachusetts guy. Yep. So, and one of my favorite voices of all time. All right, well, we are going to take a break in just a moment, uh, and we will be joined on the other side by Dr. Melba Ketchum. You can go to her website if you'd like to do so during the break uh, and check out more about her. We've, of course, linked to it on our social media, and you can find it for yourself. Uh, by going online, this is the part where I'm just stretching because I'm loading it up. <laughs> Man, the internet is slowing you tonight. Uh, SasquatchGenomeProject.org is the website uh, to go to. And uh, if you 
would like to uh, check out some of the information that we'll be talking about during the course of the discussion, it's all up there. I mean, all the research is up there. Uh, stuff that I can't even comprehend, that I can't even wrap my head around, uh, but you can actually find it all up there yourself. The supplemental raw data, all the stuff for the DNA study itself, and, you know, obviously, Moniz, you know what you're looking at when you're looking at something like this. I don't. <laughs> so we will depend on Dr. Ketchum to kind of translate it all for us, but uh, we will find out the entire full scope of what the Sasquatch Genome Pro genome project see what happens when you talk for six hours straight this morning yeah you fall over all your words later on but we will uh i think where'd she go i don't know weird maybe krampus got her (laughs) she was like "Ah, i only gotta go another hour and a half and i'm safe but uh, i don't know something came early so uh, we will definitely take a break, and we'll be joined by her on the other side. And if anybody wants to call in during the course of the discussion with any questions, 508-996-0500-877-996-1420 are the numbers to call in. And you can also uh, tweet us as well if you have a question. Tweet at SpookySC, and we will ask the question on the air. And you can email us, SpookyCrew, at SpookySouthCoast.com. But, of course, the best way is to call in. Again, the numbers are 508-996-0500-877-996-1420 if you have any questions for Dr. Ketchum during the show. And uh, we will be back in just a moment with more here on Spooky South Coast on New Bedford's News Talk Station 1420 WBSM. And we are here to talk about the paranormal, as we do each and every Saturday night, both here on WBSM, as well as broadcasting live on Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com. If you go to our website and click on the Spooky TV link, you will be able to watch what goes on here in the studio as we have the show with you know, multiple camera angles and some uh, information on the lower third. Uh, of course, uh, you can follow along with us on Twitter as well using the hashtag SpookyLive during the show, and we will see those tweets. Uh, as long as you use that hashtag, they'll show up in our feed that's right there on Spooky TV as well, so that we'll be able to actually uh, interact with you that way. It's a good way to get out some questions that you may have or make some points, but, of course, you can also call in as well, 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. Now, joining us is our guest for tonight, Dr. Melba Ketchum. Uh, she is the lead scientist for the Sasquatch Genome Progress uh, Progress Project. 
I'm telling you, man, if I make it to the next hour and a half without stumbling over all my words, I'll be surprised. Uh, but uh, she is a Moody Scholar and attended Texas A&M University in College Station, where she received her doctorate in veterinary medicine in only five years. She practiced veterinary medicine until 1985, when her interest in genetics led her to establish DNA diagnostics. She's also been a visiting scientist at the University of Kentucky's Animal Genetic Testing and Research Laboratory, and she has completed numerous training programs as new methods and technologies in DNA analysis have been introduced. So she is definitely on the forefront of DNA technology and is applying that to the Sasquatch question, and she joins us now on the phone line. Good evening, Dr. Ketchum. How are you tonight? I'm fine. Can you hear me? Oh, we can hear you great. Okay, great, because you're a little dim. Well, that's not the first time somebody said that. <laughs> but uh, I'll try my best to fight through it and uh, <laughs> and see if we can't figure this out. Can you hear me a little bit better now? Yeah, I can hear you fine. Okay. Uh, so, uh, you know, we, we were uh, discussing uh, earlier on uh, at the beginning of the show the fact that there are numerous different theories out there about what a Sasquatch could be. And some of those theories that people have are dependent on them being, you know, non-corporeal, non-physical beings. Uh, but you have been doing the research that, that proves that there is a DNA connection and, and hard physical evidence that Sasquatch creatures are out there. That's true. Uh, they definitely have DNA. They definitely exist on this planet, and um, we've proven that they exist. So... Uh, in all of your background in, in, in veterinary science and, and DNA science, how did you decide to take all of that knowledge that you've gained over the years, all that education, and put it toward the Sasquatch question? Well, it, it kind of chose me. I didn't choose it. Um, I didn't believe they exist. I was probably one of the biggest skeptics in the world. Um, but we did animal forensics, among other things, in our laboratory. And um, in doing so, we would do species identification. And every year we'd get a few samples in that, you know, people would say they were from Sasquatch. And, I mean, they'd pay to have them run. We'd run them. They weren't ever anything interesting uh, until about eight years ago now. And we got some samples in, uh, one from a TV show, Destination Truth, uh, allegedly from a Yeti in Bhutan. And then um, we got some samples from the North American Bigfoot Search, uh, which came from eyewitness sightings, some hair samples. And this was obviously non-human hair. It was more like horse mane hair that was slightly wavy. And when we did the species identification on it, and we now, mind you, we washed these samples very well to make sure there's no contamination. We also use universal primers that are in the pub. They're in the public domain. They're out there in papers. So everybody uses these primers to do species identification. If you have contamination, both species will superimpose on each other, and you'll know that you have a contaminated sample. Well, our samples were nice and clean, and we had beautiful DNA, but it was human DNA only. And human DNA doesn't come from non-human hair. So that got us to thinking something was up, and we had some people come forward with some funding then, and um, it just went from there. And uh, I was reading on your website, we're not talking about a, a little bit of funding. This was a significant amount of uh, private donation that has come through for a serious genetic study of these samples. And, and it seems like there is enough interest in there and enough people who have had experiences that want to have the answer to this question that they are willing to, to put their money where their mouth is. 
Yeah, they did. Um, we had some very good funding. We spent about half a million dollars. Of course, things are much less expensive now, thank goodness, because technology has improved. But eight years ago, it was very expensive to do what we did. And we had some very good funding. Um, our funders got really disappointed when we came out with our study and mainstream science about rolled over in its grave. They didn't want anything to do with it because of the stigma attached with uh, any kind of Sasquatch or Bigfoot-type creature. And when that happened, they were just, they quit the project because they were so disgruntled with the response from the general, you know, from the media and what have you. So then, you know, you're asked to uh, conduct some research on these samples and, and you start trying to put together a team that can actually do this and, and can bring together various different strengths in different areas. How did you select who is going to be involved with the project? Well, we started out with forensic laboratories. Um, I knew that one lab would never be taken seriously, so we ended up using 12 different labs. Uh, a lot of these labs, we didn't tell them what they were testing. We, they just thought they were testing regular human samples because we didn't want them to have any kind of a bias for or against our samples. So we just paid for the, for the samples to be tested, and we tried to get the best in the field. Um, for instance, the second author on the paper, uh, their forensic lab, uh, he, has, has, he did the extractions. He has a robotic system that's uh, phenomenal and cutting edge, and he's published in DNA extraction. He, he's, he wrote the book for it, and so, um, you know, he stepped up. And we used uh, University of Texas to do the whole genomes, the next generation sequencing for the whole genome. We used uh, University of Southern California to do uh, whole genomes on mutation genomes or SNP. It's, a, it's an array system, a SNP system, where you just do point mutations. And we did 2.5 million of those. It's um, 2.5 million human mutations they were tested against. Um, we used uh, Texas A&M, um, analyzed the electron microscopy on it. Uh, we used... Uh, two laboratories for the histopathology, which, you know, the Texas A&M uh, Veterinary Diagnostic Lab, as well as um, a very good uh, human lab in uh, Dallas to confirm the findings. And so we tried to cover all of our bases. We used cutting-edge technology. We used the best that money could buy to do this. So then for those who, you know, a lot of folks out there, you know, they, they think they have a rudimentary understanding of DNA because we hear so much about it on television uh, in terms of uh, not only the nature shows that, that now explain the connections from one species to another, but, you know, we hear a lot about it on, on the criminal, you know, the television police procedures and the, the crime dramas and all that. Uh, but for those who are, you know, kind of unfamiliar with the process, so somebody has an encounter with a creature and they find some, some uh, leftover what they feel is evidence that this creature was, was out there and interacting with them, they send it to you. What is the process from there to be able to test this and determine where it might have come from? Well, if you're just wanting a standard species ID, you just, uh, you know, you clean up your sample. Uh, in other words, you wash it if it's washable. In other words, if it's, if it's saliva or something, you obviously can't wash it. You just got to deal with the contamination. But um, the, uh, like hair samples, you know, we thoroughly wash those and agitated them to make sure that any DNA was shaken off. And uh, if this was repeated, it wasn't just a single wash. And then you're, it's basically cooked um, to where it releases the DNA out of the cells. And you add chemicals to it. You do what's called a polymerase chain reaction, or PCR, which amplifies 
the particular part of the DNA you want to look at. In this case, we were looking at species, which is through mitochondrial DNA or maternally inherited from your mother. And um, we look at this little section that's, that's highly definitive for species. And then it's put into a machine that reads out um, the sequence, which, you know, in fluorescent, uh, each base is, is tagged with a different fluorescent color. And a laser goes across it, excites it, and you therefore get your your bases, your nucleic acid bases in the order they are, or the DNA sequence. And then if, you know, if it is just a general sample that somebody's sending to you, they're not sure what it came from, you can check that sequence against other known sequences, and then it probably takes very little time to actually identify exactly. what the species might have been. Exactly. You have uh, a lot of good databases out there, GenBank and, and others, that you can uh, what, do what you call a blast, which means a search of all these millions and millions and millions of, probably in the billions at this point, sequences that have been uploaded over the years. And whatever it matches closest to, uh, it'll it'll shoot you out, and it'll say, like, you know, it matches human 100% or it matches dog 100% or whatever it's going to be. If you get something that doesn't match, then you have something. So now then, how do you go about, if, if you discover samples that, don't match any known DNA sequence, and how do you go about mapping the genome for the Sasquatch? Well, this is where you get a bioinformaticist um, involved. You have your whole genomes, and um, you have these supercomputers now where you can upload the data into them, and it will compare the whole genomes across the board with all these sequences, and it'll give you out percentages of, of what's known, and then you'll have a block, say, that's unknown. And that unknown block then has to be worked on to try to assemble it uh, where it, you know, in other words, you, you hook the different pieces of the sequence together like a train and it's cars, basically, until you get um, some idea about the organism. So now you're, you're putting all this information together and you're thinking that you are, you know, mapping the genome for something that is unknown in terms of the overall, you know, DNA structure of it. It's, it's, it, this is what could pro- possibly be the Sasquatch creature. What has been the reaction then from the scientific community to what you found? Oh, they, you know, basically, well, I'll tell you the story of Nature because that was, the, Nature's a very famous scientific journal. Mm-hmm. And, what we did was phenomenal enough to go into nature, and so we submitted to nature. Um, and these reviews are posted on our website, www.sasquatchgenomeproject.org. Um, they not only breached their contract by leaking the peer reviews, but the first time through, they, we got to we got two rounds of it, which is very difficult to do at nature because one in ten papers gets published there, and we actually had two shots at it. But the reviewers were very biased. Uh, there were four reviewers in the beginning. The first one basically passed it with revision. Um, the second one, he didn't read it because he asked for things that were already in the paper. The third one made fun of it and and was sarcastic. And the fourth one said, I want A, B, C, D. So we went in there and we did every single thing they asked us to do. And then we were allowed to resubmit. So when we get back in, they use the same reviewers. Well, the first one suddenly says, gee, I'm really not qualified to review this. So whatever anybody else says, that was his, his next review, because we had done everything he asked. The second one still didn't read the paper because he said we had no materials and methods in the paper. Well, we had been basically told to put them in a supplemental uh, part of the paper uh, because they were so long, and we 
had the section there, and it said see supplemental. So they were in the paper, but they, the paper was so long that we put them as an adjunct to it and were told to do so by the um, editor. Well, he said we didn't have it, so he failed the paper, and then he accused it of contamination, which we addressed in the paper also, and basically just said, uh, you know, it's hogwash. <laughs> The third one that was so rude, well, he just, I guess they said something to him because then he just, he says, uh, well, I just don't believe it. It has to be contamination. And let it, I just can't believe it. That was, you know, what he said. The fourth one refused to review it again. So you tell me if that's there. No, it sounds like they are already coming into it with a bias and, and coming into it with the approach of because they don't think that this creature exists, that they can't even entertain the notion that your research could prove otherwise. Exactly. It's a stigma attached to Bigfoot because there's been hoaxes, there's been people make fun of it, and therefore there's a scientific bias against it. Uh, the other thing is they can't stand the thought of a extant human hybrid, uh, uh, you know, something that's human that still lives on this planet that has other things in it besides human. They, they don't, can't think past the fact that we're all hybrids. I mean, all the Caucasians have Neanderthal in them. The Native Americans have Neanderthal and Denisovan in them. And these are, you know, extinct hominids that have crossed with humans back, you know, thousands of years ago. I mean, we're all hybrids, but they can't stand to think that there's another hybrid out there alive besides us. Yeah, well, that's a very uh, interesting point that you can find out more about on the website, sasquatchgenomeproject.org. But, it, you know, you talk about the, the actual scientific name for the Sasquatch creature and, and how this relates to human beings. Uh, yes, we did. We submitted a, a name to Zoobank, which is what you do when you discover a new creature. And it's Homo sapiens cognatus. And cognatus is one of its, its um, definitions in Latin is um, blood relatives, and they are our blood relatives because their maternally their maternal origin is human female, and therefore, you know, they are related to us. And and their nuclear DNA, which is from both mother and father, is a mosaic or a mixture of both human and unknown. So we have, you know, a hominid, in other words, an upright walking human type creature, but it's not totally human. It's a hybrid, and uh, so it's a blood relative, and that's why we chose that name. So just to be clear, when you say that it's a hybrid creature, are, are you speculating, are you theorizing that it, that at some point it was an evolutionary offshoot and it was kind of caught in the middle, or are we talking about a direct cross-pollination no, of humans and other species? No, it's a direct cross, um, and, you know, this is, this is how this happens, you know, with Neanderthal and with the Denisovans and with humans. In fact, it's interesting the fact that one of the Denisovan papers that's published speaks about how that mostly it was Denisovan males on human females. So in a sense, it's the same type of origin as the Sasquatch has. Because I, I think that, uh, that it, it, for a lot of people, they can accept the idea that this could be a you know two-legged bipedal creature that exists in the woods, and that's a lot easier to swallow for them to to think that it's that closely directly related to humans. That might be where a lot of the resistance, I'm sure, must come from. Yeah, I'm sure that's part of it. I, I'm absolutely sure of it. They just can't believe that there's another human running around out there. And and to to 
consider you know what we know about these creatures. I mean, they seem to have an intelligence. They seem to have. We've talked about it in the last couple of weeks, Matt Moniz and I, that they seem to have you know cognition of what's going on, and they seem to have uh, a thought process that is on par with human beings, even if they don't communicate. They have them. reasoning. Yeah. Yes, they absolutely have reason. And and what have, what have you seen that that proves that? Um, I've seen them. Um, I've had some interaction with them, and, oh, wow. you know, they're very intelligent. Um, and they're very stealthy. Uh, they can definitely um, hide. Uh, in, they know their environment better than we do. And yeah, I often will kind of compare it to like a, if you have a special forces soldier in a ghillie suit, in other words, camouflage, and he's in the woods, and you don't know he's there, you probably could walk right past him within 10 feet or less and never know he's there. Well, these guys are even better at it because that's their, their habitat. They live in the woods, and they can therefore know how to blend in. And they've never had any desire to, to not live in that way? No, I don't. I think it's better than how we live. There's no pressure there to speak of. It's just a natural way of living. And, and you would think that, though, with something that is of this size and of this apparent level of strength, you know, normally you see these dominating creatures of, of the animal kingdom walking around as if they own the place. And, and these creatures have shown that that's not the way that they want to conduct their business. You know, they're not walking across the Serengeti like a lion. I guess that's why they survive. Well, but, I mean, other creatures have, too. I mean, bears kind of, they, they've done a pretty good job of surviving, just walking around like they own the place. But I think These it, are not animals. Wow. Well, they that, don't think like animals. That's true. That, that can be a huge difference. Uh, well, I definitely want to get into in the next hour. We can talk more about some of your personal experiences uh, with these beings. And, and I want to get more into the idea, too, of, of what people should look for. Uh, because we talked about when Moniz went out a couple of weeks ago with uh, some members of the BFRO. And we we talked about with him some of the procedures that if you are going out and looking for evidence that one of these creatures has been around, uh, some of the things that you can look for. So I want to get into some of that with you as well a little bit later on. But again, the website, if you want to check it out during the upcoming news break, is sasquatchgenomeproject.org. And you can really get into it. It seems like every single bit of data that you've collected and every report that you have filed is all right there for people to be able to check out for themselves. Yes, we put it all out there. Um, You know, it's it's available to the public. We want the public to know. And now, have you had a lot of, uh, you know, you, we, you've talked about some of the backlash that you've had from some of the uh, scientific publications that are out there, but have you had a lot of people that have been jumping on board and, and, and trying to help you and assist you in getting the word out? Oh, absolutely, but it's been, they've kept it quiet because they don't want to lose their jobs. Uh, I mean, there's such a backlash that, you know, they don't want to come out and open about it. I've had I've had one PhD that, has a lot of Dr. David Swenson. He assembled the first Staph aureus genome, and he so he's got genomics experience. Now he's publicly come out, but he's retired now, and so he has nothing to lose. Uh, but we've had a lot of others that you know, very um, kind of top of the heap scientists that are supporting us, but they're doing it silently, and there's nothing we can do about that. And I understand it because even it was so severe the backlash when we came out with our study that um, I even, I'm taking all the, the brunt of it because I didn't want my co-authors to suffer for it. They have families to feed, and so I just said, refer them back to me whenever the people started calling and harassing. 
I mean, it's hard to believe that in this day and age, though, that believing in something that's not known to exist, you know, could cause somebody to lose their livelihood. But but people really do have that much of a, a bias against these creatures that they would actually, you know, lose a very good scientist from their staff if they feel like this this belief kind of discredits them in any way. Yes, well, it's like me. I can't I can't testify in court anymore. Forensics was one of a, a large part of my business. We did a tremendous amount of forensic work. But now they get me on the stand. They go in, in all the lies on the Internet because there's been a, a lot of hate and jealousy over this. And um, they come up with all, oh, you believe in Big Fit? <laughs> and, you know, and try to discredit me that way. And, you know, I can't put a case in jeopardy. You know, because they're going to make me look bad just because of stuff they read on the Internet. And it doesn't have to be true, but they can bring it up because it's on the Internet. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing how much that stigma can, can carry on you. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm a sports writer by trade and a journalist, and there's been times where I've actually gone to interview people, and, you know, because I'm known as a ghost guy, that has made some people kind of give me, you know, the stink eye and, and not want to talk to me and not want to give me information because they feel like because I will believe in something that they don't believe in, that it somehow reflects on how I will tell their story or represent their views. And, and that's wholly unfair because basically what you're saying to people like us is we don't think that you can do your job uh, outside of that realm of belief because of this certain belief that you have. That's true. Yeah. It's terrible. But, and I know, you know, with, with uh, some of the testifying in court, too, just how easily they would try and rip you apart for that. Oh, yeah. Any, anything to discredit you. And, and I'm sure, you know, they probably just mentioned Bigfoot, and they're like, well, game, set, match. There you go, Bigfoot. Yep, exactly. That's just about it. Well, we can talk more about that coming up in the next hour as well as more about your research. We can also take people's calls at 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. We're just going to take a break for the network news. And when we come back on the other side, more Spooky South Coast talking with our guest, Dr. Melba Ketchum. During the break, SasquatchGenomeProject.org is the website. All kinds of information there for you to check out. We're going to break a lot of it down coming up in the next hour. And we'll also find out some of Dr. Ketchum's personal encounters with these creatures maybe you've had one as well and you want to call up and share you know being here in the uh the northeast part of the united states we've had a lot of reports over the years moniz you've been tracking them recently yes just a couple of towns from here so uh, we can get into some of that as well hopefully some of the people who have experienced those will call in and share because it, it, at the very least you know the discussion about it will make other people realize when they encounter them hey wait a minute this isn't my imagination. This is a real being. This is a real creature. So we'll talk about all that more. Coming up, again, if you want to call in, 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. Those are the numbers. And also, uh, the website is SpookySouthCoast.com if you want to see what's going on here in the studio. If you want to follow Dr. Ketchum on Twitter, Dr. Melba Ketchum, at Dr. Melba Ketchum, and you can find that linked up right to our account, at SpookySC. So, uh, so many ways to interact with the show tonight. And for those of you who have been getting on my case because we're a little bit behind in the podcast, I caught up on two weeks, and then I didn't upload last week's. Sorry. I got sick, had a lot going on this week, but uh, we will certainly get that up uploaded as well as this show very quickly. So we'll be back in just a bit with more Spooky South Coast on WBSM.
back, hour number two of Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg, along with Stephanie Burke and science advisor Matt Moniz, and we are talking tonight with our guest, Dr. Melba Ketchum of the Sasquatch Genome Project. You can check out their website, sasquatchgenomeproject.org, to find out more about these creatures, which uh, Dr. Ketchum has been doing the DNA research on and has uh, begun proving to the world that these are indeed actual physical creatures. And we were talking a little bit, Dr. Ketchum, in the, in the first hour about kind of the, the history of how these beings came about and, and how they came to exist. And if we had to take a guess, how long could we say that they have been around for? Well, the, there's various, the way we're gauging this is since they're a human hybrid, since the mother is 100% modern human, uh, when we sequence the mitochondrial or the maternal or the mother's DNA from the samples, uh, you can get what's called haplogroups and, hapl- and then the individual haplotypes, uh, which is basically the mutations that you see in the mitochondrial DNA. And these mutations change at various intervals um, through thousands of years. And so you can put an approximate age on when the mother could have come into existence, the human mother. And so we know since they're hybrids and since the maternal DNA is human, that the actual Bigfoots can't be older than the age of the mother's haplogroup. So uh, we have a range between 13 and 26,000 years on those haplogroups. So in other words, um, one of the haplogroups would be didn't come into existence until 13,000 years ago. So since it was a hybrid with that woman to make the Bigfoot, then... Uh, that way you you can pretty well age that that individual that particular sasquatch or bigfoot can't be any can't have originated any earlier than say 13,000 years ago so they've been around for for quite a while and that means that all of these encounters that uh, that native american and and older uh, generations of humans have had with these type of creatures they were probably dealing directly with a sasquatch of course and and you can go back historically in the paper we actually put in a, a figure with several examples uh that you can see them on on cave uh, drawings here in in the u.s uh that were done by native americans just you know thousands of years ago and you can find them in europe i mean they're worldwide and you know like for instance we had a plate that was 500 bc that has a picture of one that we used as one of our examples there were tapestries all through the middle ages there's even uh sasquatch or because they call them wild men over there in europe uh that are carved on cathedrals in europe oh wow so um you know it we've got examples of that i mean they're they're readily available so in the earliest report of one was uh in the Babylon, I mean, in the Sumerian times, um, where there was a wild man that was friends with the king. So, um, you know, you can go back and read the Epic of Gilgamesh if you want to read the first Bigfoot account. And so these creatures across the world, and they're all interrelated and interconnected. So, you know, the Himalayan Yeti is probably the same creature that we're seeing in North America, just a different yeah, variation. Yeah, I think there'll be some, a little variance. I mean, there's sure. different variants of them. They're, you know, some are bigger, some are smaller, and what have you, but basically they're the same individual. So now when you're dealing with these then, and, and, and they are worldwide, can we speculate that they probably spread across the globe kind of in the same way that human beings did? Uh, I would think so, yeah. 
they've definitely spread because they're everywhere. I mean, no place that, uh, you know, doesn't have them. So if we look at, you know, Africa and, and the Middle East is kind of the, the area where humans might might have originated and kind of spread out worldwide, which a lot of people put forth that theory. Would you say that it might have been the same with these creatures, that they might have originated from, from that same area? Uh, we did get more Middle Eastern haplotypes um, than any other kind in our study. Um, you know, there were a lot of T2s and T2Bs, which is basically, you know, a Middle Eastern type. Um you know, we did have a couple of African types. We did have some Native American types. I mean, we had everything in there. But, see, the thing is also that one caveat I have to say is we don't know when the hybridization occurred. So uh, as far as for the individuals we were testing, for instance, uh, as of, you know, the late 1800s and early 1900s, there were still reports of, of Sasquatch interbreeding with Native American tribes and producing offspring. So... Um, you know, if there was, you know, a, there could have been a hybridization like for the for the uh, African American types that we got, or or the African types that were from this country, they could have been a slave that escaped into the wilderness and ended up, you know, as a as a consort with a Bigfoot, and that could have caused that particular haplogroup to carry in because it would have been a human woman. So you know, things like that are, you know. You don't know when the hybridization occurs. We can tell you it couldn't have occurred any earlier than, say, 13,000 years, but it, it could have occurred later than that. So then the question becomes, then, if we've had all of these uh, years and, and generations uh, and millennia of these creatures existing, then why don't we have a false record of them? Why don't we have bodies of them? This is the question that I think always comes up for a lot of people. You know, why do we have no physical remains that are left behind of these creatures' existence? Well, they bury their dead. You can go to the Native American legends, and they're very careful where and how to make sure that nobody finds them. And so we never would have excavated that the same way that usually, you know, we don't excavate the Native American bones when we're... Well, see, uh, you know, a lot of times they actually are burying within uh, reservations so that they have that protection. Hmm. I mean, I, I'm aware of one place where they are buried, but it's on Native American land, and, you know, it's sacred. You can't go in there and, and dig. And also the question comes up, then, if they are human, you know, if they are human-related, then it would probably call into a question of ethics if you are disturbing one of their burial sites. Of course. But still, at the same time, you know, has has there been any kind of fossil record of them? Has there been any fossils that have been discovered? We think there might be in the giants. And, you know, this is where we've been fortunate enough to get some D, some DNA or, you know, samples from various giant specimens. And this is what we're, we're doing a new study. We're hoping to show relatedness between the Sasquatch DNA and these these ancient remains that are that are giant in stature. I think, too, that one of the uh, biggest problems that people have with these is that, you know, they don't want to think that there is something that is that closely related to humans, but that hasn't reached the same level as humans, you know, because we we have a tendency to think that certain people within our own species are beneath us. And I think that people would have a hard time accepting that these creatures exist and they are closely related to us. Uh, I mean, you see, it seems to me from what you're saying that you see a very strong distinction between these Sasquatch creatures and 
animals, and you see a big distinction between them and humans. How would you kind of put them on a scale of an in-between in terms of the way, the way that they think and the way that they conduct themselves? I actually think that they're above us hmm. and are choosing to live how they live. I really think they're smarter than we are, more intelligent, more tuned into the universe, more, t- more tuned in than anything um, that's, you know, on this planet flesh and blood-wise. Uh, but, you know, they live almost an idyllic lifestyle in that, you know, they don't they don't have all the social pressures we do. They don't have all the technology. I mean, how many people nowadays are truly happy because they're always running, doing something at a mad rate? And here they're out in the woods. They're enjoying nature. Uh, they're living a very natural lifestyle. Um, you know, like I say, it's a choice. I know that, um, you know, they're, they have the ability um, to use tools. There's, there's, you know, people in, uh, let me put it this way. There's people called habituators. These are people that interact with them on a daily basis. Um, they've come out to them for whatever reason and they have, you know, interaction with them. And when I did this project, I had just hundreds of these kind of people contact me. And I've done my, my own little private study that I really don't go into very much where, um, when I would hear somebody say something, I would verify it from another one that called that wouldn't know the first one, wouldn't be in the same geographic location. So, um, you know, from having dealt with these people and some experience on my own, uh, I am quite certain that they are very highly evolved. So there are people that these creatures are coming out to and, and interacting with on a regular basis. Yes. And and do they communicate in some way, or is it more just a you know just a visual like a, a saying hi type of situation, or or is there an ongoing dialogue between the two? Some of them have dialogue. Some of them just um, you know are more nonverbal. It just depends on the habituator. Wait. So when you say dialogue, I mean what are we talking about? A communication that they have to work yeah, out a system. Communication. They work out a system between themselves. Or Look at Coco's the gorilla. Yeah, I mean you can make. Right, but that's, I mean, my question is, you know, have they explained to you how they communicate with them? Yeah, I don't really go into all of their personal things that they tell me. This is one reason you don't hear about the habituators very much. Most of them are very secretive because they want to protect the the Sasquatch that they interact with. And I don't blame them. I mean, you know, I've interacted enough that, you know, I would, I would protect them too. I wouldn't want anybody to hurt one because they're a type of people. And, you know, they'll leave you little gifts and, you know, do things like that. They're very, very kind individuals. Now, there are bad ones. They're just like people. There's bad ones that'll kill you. But most of those live in very remote areas, uh, not the ones that live around people in farmland and what have you. Well, without having to get into any specific individuals themselves and, and who it might have been that have told you, but have they expressed to you at all? Uh, any type of message from these creatures as to, you know, what they want out of life and what they want out of their existence and, and why they chose to remain hidden? Well, basically, they're very spiritual creatures, for one thing. They have their own type of faith, and um, they basically want us to behave as what they want, according to the habituators. They want us to not live like we're living. We're destroying the planet. We're destroying each other. Um, they're all about peace and love. Now, I'm talking about the good ones, not the not the ones that are not those that are malevolent or not included in this. I mean, we see all of these, uh, you know, all of these 
efforts to, to go green and to save the planet and to save us from, you know, completely wiping out all of our natural resources, I think that if one of these creatures was to step forward, it would certainly raise people's awareness and make them think, okay, maybe we do have to take better care of nature because there are these creatures that choose to live within it and choose to live sheltered lives. You know, we see on, you know, people put up on Facebook all the time a picture of a, a log cabin in the woods far away from everything else. And they say, that's my dream, to be able to just live there and disconnect. And I think that if one of these creatures actually came forward and we realized that they do exist, it might make us become a more responsible species. Well, it may or it may not. I mean, because with this doubting society we have, you know, it, it would be it would be pretty hard to take probably. Um but, you know, like I say, if you, all you have to do is go back to the Native American legends, and they talk about how oftentimes they would appear to the tribes when the tribe was doing something wrong or where they got off course or if they were in danger, they would appear to them and warn them. And uh, I think they still try to basically do that today, according to the habituators. So they either have that role thrust upon them or they've chosen to take that role of, you know, almost like a, a, a guiding natural spirit for, for mankind. Yeah, I would say that that's probably true. Yeah, well, we do have a question on the line, 508-996-0500, if you would like to call in. And caller, we, we apologize for for making you wait a little bit there, but do you have a question for our guest, Dr. Ketchum? Hello. Hi, you're on the air. I, I am. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, you're coming in very, very low. Um, doctor, it sounds like you've got a lot of, um, you've done a lot of research and the testing. I, I was just curious to know, have, have you ever been inspired to check into the myth of the mermaid? Well, <laughs> if somebody had a sample, I guess we could check into it, but... Um... So far, nobody's come forth with any samples, and they're probably harder to get. Let's just make a wild assumption that they exist. Um, if they exist, probably their remains, if there are any, are on the bottom of the ocean where nobody will ever get to them. Um, so it would be harder to get a sample than something that's on land. Well, it sounds, it sounds to me like if anybody can do it, you can. Well, we have a bunch of samples that are, you know, very unusual that we're in the process of getting ready to start testing. In fact, we're, you know, we've got a, a GoFundMe to raise money to test these samples. We have elongated skull samples. We have giant samples from museums. We have a giant arm bone. We have a giant femur. We have um, teeth, various giant teeth that came from large skeletons. So, Very interesting. Uh, and we've got some more Sasquatch uh, samples to run. So we have a lot of, uh, we have a tooth from Ecuador, from a skull in Ecuador that's uh, a royal skull that's highly unusual. So we have all these different samples that are just waiting to be tested. We've raised enough to test four, but we have a lot more than that, and we'd like to get them tested because I want to personally look for relatedness between all these different strange uh, races and see if they're actually you know interrelated yeah from from what i understand there have been uh for lack of a better term they've been hieroglyphics uh scratched on cave walls of the image of a mermaid and they all tend to be 
really close related. Well, all I can say is that's true. They're they're documented through history just like the Sasquatch. So, I mean, I would be stupid if I said that they didn't exist. I just don't know if they exist. And the only way to prove it is with science, uh, you know, or a personal sighting. But nobody's going to believe you if you've just got the personal sighting. You have to come up with some kind of hard evidence. Yes, yeah, yeah. it, it sounds like to me but you've done your homework. Not after this little, you not after you have definitely time. done your homework. All right, well, thank you very much for the call. Thank you. Have a great Please. night. And if anybody else has any questions for our guest, Dr. Melba Ketchum, 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. Sometimes it is a little bit difficult, Doctor, with the, the crossover of the, the caller calling in while we have you on the line. So I apologize for some of the talking over that happens, but it's harder for both sides to hear each other sometimes. No, it's fine. And... Uh, he did bring up a very good point, though, about the fact that, you know, we do see a lot of these creatures that are depicted in the hieroglyphs and in, in the cave drawings and in the different, uh, you know, visual histories that uh, that mankind has presented. And in this area, you know, here in the Northeast, we've had a lot of the, the Thunderbird legends that have happened, these giant birds. Uh, so I think it's very interesting that, you know, your research could lead you to find the discovery of, at least in the past, the existence of other creatures in addition to the Sasquatch. That's true, and that's what we want to do, and we want to, see, like I say, try to see if there's any relationship genetically between them. I mean, it's groundbreaking stuff, I just, you know, but I'm to the point that I don't think I'll try to publish again because it'll just get laughed at. But I want to put it out in documentary form for the world to see because I think the world deserves to know. Uh, one sample I forgot to mention is, is uh, one that was an eyewitness sample of a dog man uh, like an Anub- Anubis-type creature where you have the, you know, it's it's uh, like a thousand-pound wolf-looking thing. Uh, those came in, in the form of the legends of the werewolves, and, and, of course, they're documented through history, too. And, um, you know, I have no idea what we're going to find on that, but it, ca- it came from a scientist from a Ph.D., and it's from a car hitting one, and it just bounced off and kept running and uh, left hair on the car. So we've already done the mitochondrial DNA on it. Once again, we washed it. It was non-human hair, and voila, we got human mitochondrial DNA. So we don't know, uh, you know, what else we're going to get whenever we do the genome on it. But we're wanting to do that one because it's so unusual. Well, again, if anybody has any questions, 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. And uh, you can also tweet us questions as well. Either tweet us directly at SpookySC or use the hashtag SpookyLive, and we'll see it on uh, on Twitter and be able to ask the question. And, and Stephanie, there's a question on there for Dr. Ketchum. There is. Uh, Mr. Bogart had tweeted us and said that she got raked over the coals a couple of years ago. Has she since released the raw data for analysis? We released everything that was in the paper and all the data associated with the paper at the time of the paper. It can be downloaded directly at the SasquatchGenomeProject.org website. We tried to upload the whole genomes to uh, GenBank, and they refused to take them. They refused to take any sequences. They gave us the runaround. So back to a government problem there. And at this time, the raw data is at a major university. Uh, They're doing massive studies on the genomes. And we have preliminary results, which I can't really talk about at this point. Um, I don't know if the university will come out in public with it or not, but we're learning some fantastic 
interesting things about them. But you had mentioned earlier in, in the first hour, you know, the resistance that you have met uh, from a lot of people with this research, and, and it seems like, you know, it's 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 probably going to take the production of one of these creatures to get some of these, uh, you know, entities and some of these uh, various different organizations on board. Well, well, that's what we're hoping that um, actually some of these new samples will do the trick for a type specimen, because, for instance, um, the. Giants, the red-headed giant samples we have, we have two of those from two different mandibles. And um, they originated from a legend with the Paiute uh, Native Americans that uh, basically they said that uh, they battled these people and they ended up suffocating them in a cave. And um, these samples, there is a division between the, the tribes. Some of the people say the legend refers to uh, Bigfoot-type individuals and the others say they were another tribe of, of uh, Native Americans but they were tall and redheaded. So we don't know what we've got there but it could end up being more Sasquatch samples. If so, those skulls are well, well documented and we have pictures of them and everything. Funny thing is, when I came out with the GoFundMe to try to, you know, raise money to sequence these samples, um, it was very interesting because suddenly the uh, museum tweeted me and said, you can't have those. I said, yeah, we do. We got them several years ago. We, you know, gave a, made a donation, and they let us take samples. And they tried to argue, and I furnished them with the pictures that we had proving we took the samples. And they immediately shut up, and the next thing I heard very quickly thereafter, the skulls had been repatriated. Hmm. Well, I do think that uh, one of the questions that a lot of people have uh, about these about these beings about these creatures is that if they are out there uh, i'm sure the first question a lot of people would have is is it safe for me to go out into the woods if there are these creatures around and it sounds like you would argue that they've always been around so why would it be any less safe now to go out there well there there are like i say bad ones and you don't want to go into areas where there are no other people you don't want to go by yourself i mean that's just you know, smart anyway, because there's other predators out there like, you know, bears and cougars and what have you. I think just using good sense is the main thing. Uh, most of them won't hurt you. Most of them, they may run you out of there, may scare you and run you out of there, but most of them won't hurt you. But there are some areas uh, where they've had people go missing, and once again, there's been a cover-up about it, and uh, it can pretty well be related back to you know, these bad Sasquatch, but they, once again, are in very remote areas for the most part, and mostly the people that go missing oftentimes, not always, but sometimes, um, are hiking by themselves somewhere. So, um, you know, and especially children, be sure if you go into the woods, you know, keep your children in sight at all times. Well, if that's the case, then, you know, and if you are kind of putting yourself in harm's way, if you choose to, to cross one of these creatures, especially if you encounter one of these bad ones, then how do you feel about all these television shows that are developing and going out and researching Bigfoot creatures and, and now the fact that it's actually popping up with a lot of amateur people who are going out there and, and going what they call squatching in the woods where they're trying to find one of these creatures and, and, and maybe even kill it and, and take it as a prize? Well, one, they can outsmart you, so I'm not real worried about them killing one. Um, they they definitely know you're coming in those woods before you ever even get there almost. And 
Secondly, I don't approve of people going out hunting them. I think that that's murder because they're a type of people. Uh, thirdly, all that garbage on TV is so much bull. I mean, the people, most of the people that are on those shows don't know anything about Sasquatch. They've never had interaction with them. They've never even seen one. Or if they have, it was just them one run across the road or something, and they got a glance at it. Uh, the people that really know about these creatures are the habituators, the ones that, that live in rural areas and have interaction with them. And they're the people that people should be learning from, not the ones that are on TV. The ones on TV, they're out to make a buck. They're out to be famous, and that's fine. More power to them. But they're, sp- they're spreading wrong information. And they're instilling that these are monsters, and they're instilling this desire, like you said, for people to go out. In Oklahoma, they had two guys that went out at night hunting, wanting to kill a Sasquatch, and one of them ended up shooting the other guy because he saw an upright figure walking through the woods. Now, how stupid is that? That alone is enough to to make you want to pass a law and not to be able to hunt them. Not only that, but it doesn't help either when there are those who are going out there and hunting these creatures and coming back and uh, and perpetrating gigantic hoaxes, which I'm sure you know, oh, yeah. that's casts, a mess. casts a huge negative light on the work that you do. Right, and, and that's been part of the problem. And then on top of that, you know, you have the, the people that, you know, they mean well, but they don't know what they're dealing with, really. And these TV shows keep saying how they're apes, or they're apes. They're not apes, and that's the whole problem. Somebody thinks they're just an animal and they can go out and deal with them like an animal. That's just not going to happen. And it, and it can put them in harm's way. So, you know, they think they can just, you know, shoot one like a like an animal. Well, they're so big and they're so powerful. I mean, there's stories out there where they've, people have shot them and they've been dismembered because of it. See, now, I don't watch a lot of the Bigfoot TV shows. I've never actually watched an entire I don't watch episode. them now. That's nothing. No. <laughs> But I'll say this, I'd be more interested as a television viewer. I wouldn't want to watch a show about these people that are out in the woods looking for them. I'd want to watch a show about these habituators who are interacting with them and talking to them and learning from them and and, and getting the message from them. And, you know, you had mentioned the communication before. And and do they actually have words, a, a language that they can share with us? And is there any commonality between their language and ours? They have language, and there are many reports where they oftentimes... Usually, to Native American peoples will speak in their tongue to them. Um, and, you know, a lot of the habituators claim they can also telepathically speak. So that is, that is a claim that is common among almost every habituator. So then if that's the case, then, why is it that these creatures are able to communicate telepathically and, and that we can't? Is it, is it a matter of that maybe we can and we just haven't learned yet? I think that we've got so much garbage in our head from all the technology, TV, and everything else that fills our world that we can't sit quietly enough to connect in the way that they do. Uh, I think that, you know, that type of probably communication, it can it happens with people sometimes, but it's not the common thing because, uh, you know, our mind is too filled with other stuff to allow us the, I mean, I think you have to probably be like, you know, one of the masters, like the Dalai Lama or some of the other people that spend hours in meditation to be able to clear one's mind well enough to actually function in that capacity. I don't know anybody that communicates telepathically, human beings. There's, there's people that can. Uh, there's um, several studies actually out on it. But, I'm, I'm um, looking at my co-host. Again, it's more rudimentary than what I understand that they do. Uh, my co-host, Stephanie Burke, has that ability and it, and it freaks everybody out. 
So I'm kind of just, you know, sorry, picking on her a little bit. But uh, she she does have that ability, and it's and it's quite weird when you know she's texting me back the answers to the questions before I've even typed out the questions to her. But it happens. But at least you keep me around. That's true. Yeah, I didn't get weirded out and be like, "Go away, freak." Some people Which, do. I know. I know. So then uh, we call these these beings, these creatures, Sasquatch or, or Bigfoot. Do they have a name for themselves? Have they revealed who they wh- what they call themselves? Oh, there's there's a number of names for them. They really don't care what we call them for the most part. <laughs> well, as you know, as, as... from what I mean, like I say, this is this comes from lots of speaking with lots of habituators over the last eight years. So, but you've had your own personal encounters with it, but you wouldn't consider yourself to be a, a habituator. Uh, yeah, I guess you could call me that in some ways. Uh, I mean, I've I've had interaction with them. I've seen them. Um, they're massive. It was they're they came to you, or, or you went to them? I'm sorry. They came to you, or you went to them? They came to me. So, what, okay. I mean, would you mind sharing with us, uh, you know, what the encounter was like? Uh, actually, my first encounter where I actually saw them. Uh, occurred when um, a couple of local habituators, I say local, you know, 100 miles from here, um, just kept begging me to come have an experience. And, I mean, I thought they were crazy. I'm sorry, I did. And finally, curiosity killed a cat, and I took the plunge, and I went up there and met them at a habituation site. And the first thing I saw... um, this was broad daylight. We were walking out in the woods, and one of them turned to me and said, See him peeking at you from back from behind that tree over there? And sure enough, there was a black head. I mean, he was black, and he was haired all over his face. And he was peeking at me from behind a tree. And for several seconds, I was able to stare at him, and then he poofed just really so fast, I couldn't even see him move almost. He was gone. And then at night, uh, there was a tree line, and we put some lawn chairs out there, and we're waiting for them to show up after dark. And uh, the habituators walked over against the tree line and were, you know, I guess communicating with them. And they finally called me over. And when I went over there, I was able to see them in the shadows because it was a full moon. And there was an eight-foot male that stood about, I don't know, 20 25, 30 feet in front of me against the tree, and I saw his full body. Wow. And he didn't have hair on his face. Now, I couldn't make out his features real clear because it wasn't that bright, but I could. his face shined in the moonlight, and so I was able to see that he had no hair on his face. The rest of him was haired, and he was, you know, black, which made it even harder to, you know, to see him. But um, he was very square built, and like I say, he was about eight foot tall. And when I turned to the person beside me and I looked back and he was gone but I got to look at him for several minutes actually before he moved and he stood just as still and uh, I, there was a mother with, with two babies that the babies were in a little hollow and, and they were they kept watching us you could see their little heads bobbing around and moving and she was standing behind them and they were just looking at us uh, probably the most interesting thing was I saw a juvenile um there was a strip of woods, and there was a security light on the far side of the strip of woods. And it was old enough timber that it was kind of open underneath uh, where this particular spot was. And I saw a juvenile run across. And when he ran, he was leaning forward, and it was so rapid you couldn't even hardly see his legs move. I mean, it was just like, zoom. I've never seen anything run that fast. 
so they have great speed. So, yeah, I've had some really interesting encounters. Just to go back for a second, you had mentioned the, the large one that you saw against the tree that didn't have hair on his face. Is there any reason why the, the first one that you saw peeking out from behind the tree had a hairy face and the second one didn't? Anything in, in who they are? Or is it kind of just, it's you know, just like people. Ride? They all look different. Okay. They all have human features on their face, but, you know, they some look different than others, you know, as far as, I mean, I've got pictures of one where it's just got a little tuft of hair on each cheek. And otherwise, he's he's not particularly haired on his face, and you know. So there's there's definitely you know variation between them. Some of them have larger, flatter noses. The the one that I just mentioned, he's got a little small nose, and you know they they just all there's some features about them that are similar. They mostly have pretty heavy brow ridges, and their eyes are a little bit deeper sunk than ours. Um, but uh, and their upper lip is longer. Um, than ours, as far as the distance between their nose and, and their uh, their mouth is a little bit longer. But you know, by and large, they're just like us, as far as they they're very much individuals. Well, uh, one of the questions that I would have then, in, in terms of, I mean, obviously with the Sasquatch Genome Project, you are mapping the the DNA structure and the, and the genome of these creatures, and they do, are a physical entity that uh, that can be qualified and measured and and explained. And, but it also seems like they have some, from some of the description that you're giving and some of the abilities that they seem to have, almost a a magical type of property to them. Would you say that is it fair to say that these beings might exist? in that realm of a combination of the physical and, and the magical? That's one of the theories out there. There's a lot of theories. Um, DNA is not going to tell us that, so I can't really comment as to whether or not that's actually true. But, there, you know, the only credence I give to it, besides all of the eyewitnesses that, that say things like that, um, is that that's a very good reason as to why they've not been, quote, discovered like an ape or a, or another tribe of just regular people. I mean, I'm sorry. What about UFO connections? There's some people that have talked to me about that. Um, I, I know what I've been told. I don't want to go into it. Uh, I know what's happening there, though. Okay. All right, well, fair enough. We can we can say. I mean, uh, you know, the, the interviewer and me wants to question you on that more, but uh, I'll respect uh your stance on that, and, and hopefully something we can get into somewhere down the line. But uh, one of the most common questions that I think people have with these creatures is uh, if they are out there and they are uh, interacting with us, at least in some way, is there any particular pattern that runs through those who have become habituators? Is there any any type of a certain characteristic or a certain type of person that they may seek out yes, to communicate absolutely. with? absolutely. The one thing I've learned about them, they're either all psychic or they're all very spiritual or they're a combination thereof. They don't come out, you know, uh, open very openly to people that aren't that way. Okay. You should hear stories about, you know, that uh, there's people who are skeptics and then all of a sudden one shows up in their car window or, or people who are out there as hunters and, you know, refuse to respect the boundaries of where these creatures are. The next thing you know, there's one flipping over their car. But you're saying it's kind of the opposite. It's more they're seeking out those who are more willing to accept that, that they yes. exist. And, Yes, they they absolutely choose who they want to deal with. So, Stephanie, stay out of the woods is basically what you're saying? Right. I heard that. <laughs> if she's psychic, she could probably hear them, according to the habituators. Oh, she definitely is very psychic, so I, I think we just... <laughs> she have a good time, then. She should come to our habituation site. She's basically, right now, she's on a real estate website putting her house up for sale. 
my God. Because it's too close to the woods for her. I have 56 acres behind me. We've had this discussion. Those, those, I'm a little afraid. I'm not going to lie. No, it, they'd already got you. If, you. if they were bad, they'd already had you. They won't hurt you. Just make sure you turn the floodlights on when you get home tonight. <laughs> Thanks, Tim. <laughs> So now, uh, what is the next step then for the Sasquatch Genome Project uh, with all the information that you've already put out there and all the work that you've already done? What, what's coming down the pipeline? Uh, the, the new samples that we haven't tested yet, the, the giants, the elongated skulls, the, the strange Ecuadorian skull, the giant femur, the giant humerus. We've got various large and humongous teeth that, can, that are hominid teeth. Um, we've got some more hair from the Sasquatches. We've got... You know, we've got a bunch of samples, and they're all unusual and have not been any genetic testing done on them to any great extent. In other words, they've not had whole genomes done that will tell the story, and this is what I'm out to do. Well, you mentioned, of course, having a GoFundMe so that people can make donations, and I'm sure that you have still private donors that are contacting you, but if people want to get involved and and give a donation, how can they do so? Uh, On our website, there's a link that says support the... Sasquatch Genome Project. Um, that's one way. Um, I have on my Facebook, um, I've got links to the GoFundMe page uh, under Dr. Melba Ketchum on Facebook. Um, you know, it's also, it mirrors on Twitter, so the if you go to my tweets, you can also, at Dr. Melba Ketchum, you can, you can find the link to the to GoFundMe. It's listed as a documentary, Bigfoot Decoded. Uh, the science behind the legend, and that's the truth. That's exactly what it is. It's science behind the legend. And uh, that's where we're, you know, in, and we want to release it as a documentary so that, you know, a wider audience will, will understand the truth. And obviously it helps if people can continue to send you uh, the samples that they find as well. I mean, what do you look for and what should people look for if they're out where they think they might have had an encounter with one of these beings? Well, it's a, it depends on what they're looking for. I mean, you know, there's people that if, you, if it's on private land and there's mounds, they can dig for giants. Uh, but as far as, as Sasquatch, uh, you know, if you have a sighting and it's in the woods, you go check the sighting around where you saw it to see if it didn't leave some hair. And like I say, the hair's usually, you know, three to four, five inches long, depending. And it's a little wavy, looks about like horse mane hair. Um, that's one way to get it. Other people have put out food for them. I don't recommend that. Well, yeah, because you don't know what else is going to come either. <laughs> right. And plus, saliva is not as good a sample to do sequencing on because you can't wash the other DNA off of it, meaning the mouth bacteria and what have you. So, and then if they do find a, a very interesting sample, something that they'd want to send your way, are you still accepting them? Or are you still testing other samples? We've been testing, we've been accepting them so far. Uh, it'll depend on how many samples we can actually get tested. Um, you know, we're, we're targeting $2,500 per sample for the whole genomes, which is, you know, very reasonable these days. Uh, I mean, it may not sound reasonable, but it is compared to $20,000 a genome three or four years ago. Oh, sure, yeah. You know, so, not, not everybody's um, like Moniz building, you know, DNA sequencers in their basement, you know, so. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, the point I'm making is that it's it's now becoming way more affordable to, you know, to get these samples tested. So, you know, some people would have the money to actually pay to have their samples tested, too. 
Is there going to be uh, at any point, uh, you know, will, will there be a situation where you feel like you will have a completely mapped genome of the Sasquatch and will be able to present that as the evidence of their existence and that will be enough to get people to accept it as opposed to actually having to lay eyes on the creature? I think so, if, especially if one of these skeletal remains will turn out um, because, you know, then that gives you the type specimen. Um, and, you know, eventually somebody will come up with something uh, I think, uh, I just hope it's not a body because, like, I just, I would, if you believe the Native American legends, they say that you get a curse if you kill one, so I don't know. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to kill one regardless because, I mean, I've had very good experiences with them and, I mean, extremely kind experiences. I mean, overtly kind. So I personally could never justify harming one at all. I'm, I'm very fond of the ones I've had interaction with. It, it seems like most habituators, you get very attached to them. It seems to me like it's a, a lesson that can be learned to think that there is a, a being out there that is uh, physically superior to us and seems to have the same mental capabilities and reason as us, uh, yet they don't seem to have the same ego as us. No, they don't. They're, they're just little family groups, and they're, they're happy. And, you know, they're curious about us as we are about them. Um. But, you know, like I say, I, I just, I can't imagine anybody wanting to kill one, but, you know, these, you get all this on TV stirring it up, saying that they're monsters and beasts and animals, and so people think, oh, well, they can just be killed then, but that's just not the case. I wouldn't want any type of connection with any of that. I mean, they're, you know, because they're a type of people. Well, I'm, uh, I'm certainly looking forward to what information you will have coming down the line uh, going forward and, and getting the documentary done and, of course, continuing to map the Sasquatch genome. Uh, certainly keep us up to date with all of your research, and, and we'd love to have you come back on again and, and talk about it. We'll, we'll get you to open up a little bit about that UFO connection, too. <laughs> no, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Ketchum, for joining us. You have a fantastic evening. Okay, thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. That again is Dr. Melba Ketchum. You can check out the website, sasquatchgenomeproject.org, if you would like to find out more and find out how you can send them samples and also make donations if you want to help as well. Stephanie's giving me this look like you're a jerk. Now I don't want to go home. Right. I'm going to make sure that uh, every light in the neighborhood is on when I get home. If I didn't like you as much as I do, I would say I hope Krampus eats you tonight. Ooh. I've got about five minutes. Yes, left. you do. So in the five minutes that remains, if Krampus is coming, he better do it now. Right. And I, I've got the gigantic glass window out in front of me. You do. So if he's coming, I'm going to see it happening, I think. I was going to say, can I he, mean, if can it's he just disappear spirit, out of nowhere? I'm sure he could. And also, wait a minute. Does it matter what time it becomes December 6th? Like, is it local? Well, like it is must it be, December right? 6th this time? Because it's not going to be December 6th everywhere. No, for a little, but we're you guys the first, aren't, so... You guys aren't leaving until I leave. Yeah? I yeah. have to walk out in the parking lot with you? Yeah, we're all going to leave together. So because, that way I don't get eaten by a Bigfoot, too? Well, if you were, you, like, like Dr. Ketchum said, it would have happened already. You've been living amongst them for years now. Apparently so, and apparently I can talk to them, too. But they haven't talked to you. I so don't you, know. Maybe they have, and I don't know. I so don't know anything about them. They scare me. Next time Andy tries to take you out into the woods in Rhode Island, I'm it's, saying it's no. not going to happen. That's the first thing that popped into my head as I was walking in the woods in the dark by myself on Halloween. There will be no more future trips to Hell Hollow for you. No more nope. trips to, uh, well, uh, what's it, um, Tucker Hollow Road. 
took her hella road, yes. And uh, there'll be no no visits to nope. Ramtail. There'll be no visit. We're not. We're never even going to get her into the Freetown State Forest again. <laughs> nope. No trips to my backyard. Well, you can take comfort in the fact that you would probably get one of the good ones. I would think. I think the bad ones would know not to mess with you. I don't know. What if that happened though? What if a good Sasquatch? approached you and wanted to interact with you, wanted you to become one of these habituators, how would would you be able to deal with that if it was coming to you in a be- benevolent way? I think so. I mean, I know they say it's not an animal, but in case anybody's met me before or haven't met me, I mean, how, how often do I talk about cats? I'm the biggest well, animal Well, because ever. that's what I'm thinking your husband is the most worried about, is that one I'll of these one creatures home. is going to interact <laughs> with you and you're going to adopt what, it. What's that show from, like, the... Harry, Harry and the Hendersons. Yes, oh. Harry yes. and the Hendersons. That would have. Been, that would. Or there was Alf too. Do you guys remember Alf? Oh yeah, Alf like the alien. Yeah, he was kind of like Sasquatchy. Yeah, but he was only this tall. I know, but he was Sasquatchy. You would never adopt Alf. No. He ate cats. Oh, that's right. You don't have to talk to me about Alf. Alf. Alf was one of my heroes growing up. Really? Yes. I grew this nose just so I could look more like him. I forgot he ate cats. That was my nickname in high school. They called me Alf. Really? Yeah, because I was kind of hairy and I had a big nose. I can only see you now. I'm still hairy with a big nose, so it really doesn't make a difference. It works out. I haven't, I haven't really changed all that much. Uh, so, yeah, but... Uh, I don't know if I could... I'd probably be divorced if I brought any more animals home, never mind a Bigfoot. But then again, maybe he'd enjoy that because he kind of likes Bigfoot. Well, Harry and the Hendersons, you know, they got a very benevolent Sasquatch. Right. So, you know, I, th- I think he'd much rather you brought him home than John Lithgow, mm-hmm. who, you know, was in the movie. Yeah. He, all right. You guys know, but like there's people listening in the audience who are like, what are they talking about? I've never seen all these really weird 80s movies. But back then, you know, we could dream about adopting a Sasquatch of our own. Right. It was a simpler time. How do you even become Ra- friends with a Sasquatch? Reaganomics. That's how. All right. That does it for this week's <laughs> show. Uh, we are just about out of time. Uh, I was trying to think of whatever 80s connection there could have been that would allow for it. But uh, uh, we will be back next week for another exciting discussion about the paranormal. And, again, you can always find the archives on iTunes, wherever archives are found, and also rebroadcasting each week on Art Bell's Dark Matter Radio Network. So if you are a fan of Art Bell, he is back. He is broadcasting nightly with Midnight in the Desert. Just go to ArtBell.com if you want to find out more about that show. And you can subscribe and get all of his archives as well. And uh, there's a variety of different shows that also run on the network. And we are honored and privileged to be part of that programming. So uh, I'm, I'm, it just means so much to me, the fact that you know Art, Art Bell considers us good enough to be on his network. And uh, and I know that he'll listen to this show, and uh, he'll be fascinated by what Dr. Ketchum had to say. So you'll be hearing her on Midnight in the Desert coming up in the future, I'm sure. Well, that does it for this week's show. Again, as I mentioned, we'll be back next week. We have a lot to talk about, a lot of paranormal topics to cover as we approach our 10th anniversary coming up next month. So we look forward to partying hard and celebrating with all of you for that. Until next week, for Matt, for Matt, for Stephanie, for Chris, I'm Tim, and we want you all to stay spooktacular. <laughs>